2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lamisa abdelati from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Heather Smith-Kanoy, Patricia Rada, and Charles Anthony Smith about their book, Sex Trafficking and Human Rights, The Status of Women and State Responses, which was published by Georgetown University Press in 2022. Welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Thanks so much
3: for, for having, having us. us. Thank, you. Yeah, thank
0: you.
2: So I wanted to begin the interview with uh, each of you just telling us uh, a little bit about yourselves. Um, so Heather, why don't we start with
0: you? Sure. Uh, Thank you, Lamy. And it's wonderful to be here. Um, Well, my name is Heather Smith Kanoy. I am a professor of political science and social justice and human rights at Arizona State University. I'm currently serving as the interim director of the School of Social and Behavioral Sciences, and my work largely focuses on the ways that international law can improve the plight of marginalized populations. And one of the groups that uh, I've focused on pretty extensively has been uh, the rights of sex trafficking survivors.
3: Thank you. Patty? Yes, I am an assistant professor in political science at Carroll University here in Wisconsin. Um, I'm also the head of our global studies program and major. Um, My research is very similar in in broad strokes as Heather's. Um, I look at marginalized communities and the ways in which they um, interact with, resist, try to change the international structures and international laws that influence their lives. Um, I also focus a lot on trafficking, but my work is also being drawn more in the direction of the LGBTQ community, in particular trans victims of things like sex trafficking.
4: Thank you. And Tony? Um, I'm a Professor of political science and in the law school at the University of California, Irvine. I'm also the editor-in-chief for a (laughs) journal called Political Research Quarterly. Um, My research uh, looks at the way law and legal institutions interact with political actors to either fulfill or inhibit rights uh, along a broad spectrum. Heather and I have worked together a lot. Uh, I was Patty's uh, dissertation advisor, and um, uh, so we've worked together a lot as well. Uh, And I, I too, look a lot at uh, sexual minorities, sex trafficking victims. Um, I do a lot on gerrymandering and election uh, Mm -hmm. litigation and uh, electoral rights as well. So that's who we all are.
2: (laughs) Well, it's wonderful to have you all here. Um, So uh, how did you come to write this book, uh, Sex Trafficking and Human Rights?
0: I can pick up on that one. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Tony and I had started working on a series of projects when we were in graduate school together at UC San Diego. Um, And sort of the genesis of this book came from our first trafficking article together. And the observation there was to see that, you know, just through news, kind of anecdotal evidence, we saw that when UN peacekeepers went into quell conflict, that we started in the human rights community to to notice that there was um, more and more sort of growing references to sex trafficking happening in those places and that got us thinking about you know so is that correlation is there some sort of causation there what can we do to sort of understand better whether or not peacekeepers are contributing to sex trafficking and so what we found in a piece that we published in 2010 was that Indeed, when you look at, you know, when you sort of look at cases where peacekeepers went in, where there were no peacekeepers. When peacekeepers go in there's a tremendous increase in the amount of sex trafficking that starts to happen largely at the hands of the peacekeepers and this started us on a series of projects where we were just sort of fascinated by this duality right the the international community comes in we're expecting that they will do good and certainly in some instances they do um but it's also rather problematic when it comes to sex trafficking and slavery and abuse um and so this book um sort of comes or stems from that earlier work that we did.
4: Yeah. That, that, so that first project led us to another project where the Netherlands are uh, leaders in, um, progressive mm-hmm. leading and talk internationally about how to combat human trafficking. But then when they enter into the appropriate protocols, they also excluded their own territories, uh, Aruba, Bonaire, Curaçao, the ABC islands. And so that got us looking at the, the idea that a whole lot of folks were spending a whole lot of time talking about human trafficking, but domestically not really paying serious attention to it. And that that's sort of uh, uh, what led to this book. Um, and it, it came together pretty quickly under this central premise that it was obvious to us where women had cultural, political, and economic rights, systems actually took human trafficking seriously as a crime and tried to fix it. To the extent those three things didn't exist, um, the the systems cared less about it and worried about making the international actors happy, but not really changing things on the ground. Okay. So.
3: Uh, And I got sort of pulled in, um, as Tony said, he was my dissertation advisor, and my dissertation looked at um, the obstacles that certain groups face in securing asylum in Europe during the Syrian uh, refugee crisis. And a lot of my work focused on the um, particular obstacles faced by stateless persons. And Tony and I ended up doing some stuff with that part of the dissertation for another book that Heather edited, uh, because we noticed some pretty... Pretty worrying but important overlaps between stateless persons and trafficking victims. Um, and so that kind of snowballed then into joining in the book. Um, it it and bringing seemed that like a really
4: organic addition yeah. to bring Patty in because one of the ways uh, trafficking victims get controlled is their traffickers, the people that are moving them around. Take their papers and they make yeah. them stateless. So yeah. somebody's in a new country; they don't speak the language, they don't have the ability to leave legally, um, they don't have their passport anymore. And so it was really organic uh, to bring Patty in to help us uh, uh, get through the last the last half of the project.
3: <laughs> yeah,
2: well, it's a it's a wonderful team, uh, and it's uh, it's really impressive how you each brought sort of strengths to this project. Um, So before we dive in uh, and I ask you about the central argument uh, about the book in some more detail, um, do you mind um, telling us specifically what trafficking is and how it relates to uh, slavery and smuggling?
0: Sure. I mean, I can can start with this one. So when we think about trafficking, we're thinking about a process whereby people are transported in some way that ends with enslaved labor. So a situation where someone can't say no, right? So that can be for sex, that can be for labor, that can be for all sorts of different kinds of forced servitude. Um, But we're thinking about that process that it entails. When we think about something like smuggling, um, this is a much shorter process where we're typically thinking about moving across a border, right? It doesn't necessarily end with the process of enslavement. And so those are, I mean, that's the way that I conceptualize the difference here. Yeah. Tony, Patty, am I missing anything?
3: Well, and I I think your question about definitions is is an excellent one because especially trafficking and smuggling, they can so easily, it's it's cyclical, right? So a smuggling situation can very easily become a trafficking situation and vice versa. Um, I mean- both in, usually involve some kind of movement, but the the real difference is that long-term exploitation that happens with trafficking. You have sort of short-term intense exploitation in a case of smuggling, but that longer term, even once you've reached your destination, um, I think that's kind of the real difference there. Um, I, I, Tony, I'm sorry, did you have... Yeah, I, I just
4: wanted to add in on that, that this is one of the things that um, we don't think states fully appreciate, that mm-hmm. once you put together an inf- a smuggling infrastructure that can manage human trafficking, Then you've got an infrastructure that can do all kinds of illicit behavior. Uh, A kilo of cocaine is never going to stab you in the neck and try to run away. A person might. So if you can master smuggling humans in a human trafficking chain, you can manage guns, knockoff Gucci bags, cocaine, um, fake Viagra, you name it. You can, you can smuggle anything if you can master smuggling humans. So these networks can develop and it really is a much more serious security threat to States than States think of it as particularly the States that disregard the rights of women or the status of women. They, they don't appreciate that there's actually a substantial security risk here that is directly driven by the, uh, human trafficking capacity
3: and i think you asked about slavery as well right um i i I think the distinction there is maybe even harder for people to understand because as heather said we you know it's enslaved labor at the end whatever kind of labor that you're doing but i think especially if we look at the slave markets that unfortunately have been resurfacing in particular in north africa um there seems to be sort of a cultural if not legal acceptance that slavery is a is a appropriate practice right and so it at least the the difference i think we're seeing now is whether it has to be in the shadows or not um but i think just with smuggling just like with smuggling it's a very fuzzy gray area and there are you know we're talking about degrees of difference between these three terms rather than them being completely separate
4: concepts and And i'll just say one other thing about so slavery could be local yeah and it could be a local problem Mm-hmm. What makes human trafficking a much more complex problem <laughs> is it might engage local, subnational, national, and international governments, and so once you have the diffusion of responsibility for enforcement of law, you present all different kinds of problems in actually trying to solve the problem. Yeah. So, uh, human trafficking is more complex. If slavery is happening locally, it's because the local governance structures and elites are tolerating it. If human trafficking uh, type slavery uh, is a much more damning event, because it implicates every level of government you can think of.
0: And indeed, I mean, we find in the book, you know, in the Thai case, We found that immigration, uh, those that are responsible for immigration detention centers were involved in selling Rohingya to offshore traffickers, right? So not only are they allowing it to happen, but in many instances, they are personally profiting from that
4: trafficking process. Heather, why don't you explain what Rohingya people are? For anybody that's listening and hasn't heard that (laughs) one
0: before. Right. So just in case um, that that is a new term, uh, the Rohingya are um, a group um, that um, have lived really for centuries in the area um, around Myanmar, um, Thailand, Bangladesh, um, and they are a stateless people. So in about 1984, the vast majority of the population has lived in Myanmar or Burma, depending upon the term that you like to use for that country. Um, about 1984, a, a citizenship law was passed that deprived them of the ability to possess citizenship. They became stateless, um, and in the the succeeding years, there has been a, a massive campaign of what the United Nations has called genocide against uh, uh, against the Rohingya population. And so, yeah. part of what we capture in the book in our Thai case are Rohingya that are fleeing genocide in Myanmar um, and getting caught up in Thai detention facilities and then sold to offshore traffickers by Thai authorities who don't want to sort of have them there in the country. Um, and there was a, a Pulitzer Prize winning series of articles that were done about that process whereby the Thai government actually sold Rohingya to traffickers. And um, just as an aside, that really spurred us on to a side project here so the book that tony and patty were talking about earlier with that stateless mm-hmm. population was largely derived from the fact that we you know i worked on this tie case and it was shocking to me that the government was involved this wasn't something that the government was turning the other way um and just allowing to happen but instead they were participating and so that you know we <laughs> moved into this edited volume project because we really wanted to think about um the human rights and movement and migration and statelessness and trafficking and the intersection of all of those concepts
2: it's fascinating um so uh, Tony's uh, sort of already hinted at uh, some of the arguments in the book right about the status of women and women's rights and how that relates to sex trafficking but can I ask you to perhaps explain the
0: central argument in a little bit more detail sure, I mean, I, I'll take a stab at it first and ask my co-authors to help me here. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I'm going to say we we focused on two sets of questions. And so the first question that we asked was who is likely to become a sex trafficking victim and what factors help us predict who may become more or less vulnerable to trafficking. Um, and we find, of course, that in countries where women's human rights are not protected, that there are higher there's a higher probability that those countries will be source countries for sex trafficking victims. So, if countries are not protecting the economic rights of women and girls, those women and girls become vulnerable to traffickers in a variety of senses. And we'll talk about what that trafficking can look like. It's not the, you know, sort of Liam Neeson taken kidnapping <laughs> version that we all imagine that I, I, I would say many of us that work on this work crazy, right? That's not what it looks like. Um, we're talking about a very different kind of trafficking. Um and so that's the first argument that we make in the book. And we we assess that um, using quantitative analysis and then qualitative analysis through our cases. Um, and, and in the second, we sort of were asking this question about whether or not national legislation in the countries that we studied in our cases was more criminal justice oriented. So in other words, were countries focusing on prosecuting traffickers, which of course is an essential piece of stamping out trafficking. Or were they focusing more on a human rights-based approach, thinking about how we protect and serve victims, um, given that it's pretty, tif- it's pretty difficult to do both things perfectly at the same time, that mm-hmm. so we created a system whereby we would evaluate and I think <laughs> I can speak for all of us when I say that we hoped we would find a lot of variation, right, that some places would be better at supporting victims and other places would be better at um, prosecutions. And I think what we found was that um, the criminal justice orientation was overwhelmingly what countries were focusing on, largely to the detriment of the trafficking victims, mostly, you know, primarily women and girls. And so I'll stop there and let my colleagues kind of step in. And that's my kind of overarching view of kind of what we what we did.
4: Yeah, let me let me talk a little bit about the criminal justice versus victims rights approach or human rights approach. Um, Even in countries that are not perhaps as democratic as we might wish all countries were, there still is a domestic audience cost from the political elites, and they have to pitch their policy decisions to the population. And nobody ever goes broke uh, scaring people about crime. So you can always uh, be more popular by saying, I've protected you from crime. So some countries focus on arresting the victims of human trafficking and they see this, we, we got these filthy sex workers off the streets. We arrested them. We rounded up all of the prostitutes. Um, and the people who, uh, perhaps wish their, uh, sons and husbands and fathers were not using the services of sex workers get very excited and say, yeah, that's, that's the solution we need. Arrest those sex workers. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other side, if you're really going to do a human rights approach and say, well, what do these victims of trafficking need? It's a harder sell in 20 seconds and a 20 second ad to the public. It's a much more nuanced thing. Even if it's infinitely more productive, if you, if you can get this person back to their home state or a state that they can thrive in, make sure they've got the proper healthcare to make sure they don't die from having been forced into sex work uh, for some reason, um, and and get them uh, whatever skill set they might need to actually go choose their own profession. Uh, it's a much better outcome for everyone. But it's a much more complicated outcome. Even though it would probably be cheaper, it's cheaper mm-hmm. than law enforcement to to uh, rehabilitate, if you can think of it in those terms. But uh, yeah, we were we we hoped we were going to find more victim-centric approaches, and uh, we did not. So um, I'll see if Patty wants to add in on any of that.
3: No, the only other thing I was going to add, and I think it's something that we did we did well, and is not as common in the literature um there tends to be kind of two approaches that you take either this you know law and order versus victimization approach or an exclusively feminist perspective and we kind of started out with the law and order thinking we could talk about rights because rights fall under laws right and that that would get us there um but i remember heather and i having this sort of a panicked conversation about whether we needed to change the entire theoretical framework of the book, um, and kind of coming to the conclusion that no, no, we don't, maybe we just need to pair these theories together. And so using feminist IR theory to sort of take a look at what what are the conversations happening about gender and sex and sexuality sort of on the ground? And how does that then combine with the institutional structures of law and order? Um, because they, yeah. they do intertwine um, and I think help explain a lot of the results that we found.
4: And I'll just tag back in on that. I think one of the unique things about the book is it's a uh, more comprehensive approach to human trafficking that, that has generalizable lessons throughout it. And a lot of the human trafficking work, and it, it makes complete sense, and our own work has been this way as well, tends to focus on a case, on a case. And the the UN intervention work that we did earlier uh, began us uh, so on this path of well what can we generalize what can we what is the lesson we can take from place to place to place and still have it be valuable so it's this merger of the feminist ir theory plus the sort of law and order uh, analysis approach um combined with it's uh it's a generalizable approach so what we find probably works anywhere you find human trafficking uh-huh. or at least we think it does
2: um, so, uh, Heather, you, you mentioned that you use quantitative and qualitative, uh, methods in this book. Um, so let me ask what, what kind of research and data collection did you do for the book? Oh boy. Okay.
0: Well, <laughs> for the quantitative, I'll talk about the quantitative data analysis. That was my area. Um, and so we wanted to make this as comprehensive as possible, largely for what the reasons Tony and Pandy were just talking about, right? I think a lot of the, the great work that's been done in this field has been country specific and we wanted to be able to say something about the patterns that we found um and i'll be frank and say that we you know part of the data that we used was to look at women's political rights we also looked at women's economic rights and our suspicion was that both would matter right in places where women don't possess the same kinds of political rights that men do we thought certainly we would see a greater likelihood that those places would be sources for sex trafficking, and, and it didn't work out that way. This turned out to be an economic story, and that was it's somewhat surprising to us, I think, that it was, you know, the, the support that we found in the data was there. So um, this is a, a global analysis. It includes all of the countries in the world. Uh, the trafficking data that we had, we wanted to look at sex trafficking specifically, so we used Frank's data for that um, which unfortunately stopped in 2011, so the data set goes from 2000 to 2011, but we were very grateful for his work in parsing out the different types of trafficking so that we're not, you know, the the story gets very messy if you combine sex trafficking, labor trafficking, all the forms of trafficking into your dependent variable. Our story about women's rights gets sort of washed out, right? Because it doesn't, you know, we're not necessarily capturing what we wanted to capture.
4: And so we're very grateful to have access to his data. Um, Can I I do a little add in right there? It's important to understand that some trafficking is human organ trafficking. Yeah. So somebody gets trafficked for human organ purposes, Mm -hmm. they die, that's it. That their organs, organs get harvested, they're dead. Some trafficking is for like the fishing ship's off mm-hmm. the coast of China, a lot of slave labor there. Um, Infant
3: trafficking. So, yeah. if
4: you put all of these things together, the the trafficking itself is so different that the causes and consequences of it blur blur together. So you can't figure out what's causing what. So I'm Absolutely. I'm sorry, Heather. But that I just wanted to make sure we talked about the extreme kinds of trafficking that why we can't include all of it.
0: Right. Absolutely. Um, And so then, you know, as, as we should do from the literature, you know, we survey the other types of explanations for trafficking for sex trafficking out there in the literature and included data um, from a host of different data sets so conflict data to sort of capture um, crime you know indicators for crime um uh, polity scale uh, rule of law status of the economy size of the population we you know we did a lot to just sort of capture um, to make sure that we were including all of the possible control variables that could have mattered here um, And I don't want to overemphasize the strength of the findings. We found some support for women's economic rights here. It wasn't overwhelmingly positive. We certainly wish that it would have been because it would have been a nice clear line of um, in the data. But but we found some support for that, certainly more than for anything else. And so um, we felt confident, sort of moving forward and thinking about you know, looking for cases that showed us some variation um, on the level of women's economic uh, rights and then sort of pursuing and, and investigating in those case studies, you know, how does this play out? How does it actually work? Because we, you know, quantitative data is wonderful for telling us about, big trends but it doesn't tell us how things work you know how it happened why it happened what the timeline was what the politics were and so i think we were all eager to to jump into the case studies and figure out you know see what we could see as it were yeah
4: so in the in the case studies um there were lots of interviews with activists politicians um uh Government officials, who you might think of as bureaucrats or administrators, in addition to mm-hmm. the political people, those will often have different takes on the world than the person who's being who's running for election or or something like that. And and a lot of the activist groups have membership of formerly trafficked people then become activists. So we um, so we talk to. Bunches of bunches of bunches of people. We looked at lots and lots, lots of journalistic reports. Um, We looked at a lot of law. We looked at the laws that were passed and then the actual budgetary implementations of those laws um, after they were passed. Um, And uh, so that's we did everything we could think of to do. Besides, we did not talk to human traffickers, really, um, (laughs) because they don't like to be interviewed, it turns out. That we know of. That we know of. Yeah, we may have. (laughs) It could be that some of those administrators and politicians were, you know, in on the game. uh, But, uh, yeah, so – that's kind of what we did. <laughs> we also,
0: I mean, I also want to make sure that we say that we did not talk to survivors directly. So yeah, right. we, we did a proxy for that in this work because we were kind of working at the global level. What we did yeah. was to speak with people that were running victim support organizations in the hopes that they could give us a sense of what they were seeing, what were some of the ways that – um you know, this attention or this focus on um, prosecuting traffickers was sacrificing the rights of victims as far as they could see it. And they were very helpful in helping us sketch that out and understanding what that trade off looked like. So, if you bring a victim in off the street um, and state authorities want to pursue a prosecution, what does it look like for the victim's human rights, right? In many instances, in many of our cases, it meant that. Um, victims were detained um, in police custody for the duration of um the prosecution process in many instances it meant that they were you know potentially sacrificing their personal security or the security mm-hmm. of their families back home um, they're being asked to relive their trauma um you know on the stand in front of um their the the person that's being accused of the crime. And so, you know, there are a lot of ways in which I think we learned by speaking with the heads of those organizations exactly what those trade-offs were between um the the uh, human rights based approach and the prosecution based approach, criminal justice oriented approach. The
4: the other great thing about that approach is that we were talking to people who had seen many, 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 many cases, as opposed to one person who may have had an idiosyncratic experience. So you can imagine if you randomly picked three people who had been human trafficked and survived and gotten out, one of them may have done it completely on their own. One of them may have been helped by some bureaucrat or police officer or something like that, and one of them may have been victimized by these folks, and yeah. we would not have gotten as clear of a picture because we wouldn't have been able to draw a representative sample in a, in a meaningful way, but by using the proxy of the <laughs> um, advocacy groups and the, and the help groups, um, those people have a broader vision of, of, uh, of what the population as a whole might look like.
2: So I wanna ask you about case selection. Uh, you uh, examine five countries in the book, India, Thailand, Russia, Nigeria, and Brazil. Um, how or, or why did you select uh, these cases?
4: Um, well, so um, I, I'll, I'll start and everybody else can jump in. Um, so we were looking for, we were wondering about how Different political systems and different economic systems would interact differently or similarly with the the process of human trafficking. And we wanted to sort of be more global. So we started with where are the countries that have the largest flow of human trafficking, where, where the, it, it's not exactly right to say it's the countries with the worst problems, because how do you, how do you measure worst? So in the United States and other work we've done, we find out if you're um, not white and you're in foster care, you're, juvenile you a justice. greater likelihood of being uh, human trafficked in the yeah. U.S. than if you are white and never in foster care. It's the opposite of the Liam Neeson movie. The, the, you know, rich white girls don't get human trafficked in the U S it's just, it's not what happens. Um, so we looked at these different countries because they have different government systems, different economic systems, but they all have a serious and substantial human trafficking problem. Um, as, as source, uh, Source countries of human trafficking victims, and so that's how we picked these cases. Um, we we started looking at some other countries too, but decided we needed to actually finish the book, and it needed to not be ten thousand. <laughs> uh, um, so, uh, but that's how we picked them. We thought it was uh, representative of a global approach uh, where we look at you know every sector of the globe a little bit anyway. Uh, or many sectors. So I don't know if Heather and Patty want to add in on that at all, but.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey.
3: Case selection happened before I before I came on the. That is true. That is true. That
0: is true.
1: (laughs) Yeah,
3: I mean,
0: I'll just say, um, just you know, looking at the data from the quantitative analysis, that you know, all of these countries exhibit low scores on um, on the level of protection for women's economic rights. So that's one piece. Um, These are all the most populous countries in the region. So these are large countries with dense populations. We thought that that was really important. yeah, and I, I'll just sort of stop there. Those were some of the reasons that we decided yeah. to choose. In addition to everything that Tony has just said,
2: so your first case study is India. Um, would you mind giving us a sense of what you find there?
0: <laughs> that is a big, big question. Oh, yeah, no,
2: that's <laughs> a big country, out. big question. Yeah, big
0: country. It's a big question, and so I'll just I'll preface this by saying that there is no way to begin to capture. The dynamics of trafficking and sexual exploitation and sexual slavery in in India. And so what I think we've done in this, you know, case study, but it really is just a case study in an international relations project is to lightly graze the surface of, of mm-hmm. the dynamics that are at play there. Um and so, you know, I think you know, we make the argument that poor enforcement of existing laws designed to protect the economic rights of women and girls in India have been particularly problematic and detrimental for the Dalit population. Right. And so when we think about the caste system in India. This is the group that comes at the bottom of that social hierarchy. Um and what we do in this chapter is to show the ways in which the laws that have existed in India that have um, largely maintained that social hierarchy structure have served to particularly impact Dalit women and girls. And so a good example of that, um, is, um, that forced marriage, right. And so we see that forced marriages are happening, um, and they go from one state to another. And so there are places within India where, um, there are very few female babies that are born, and so in those cases, there is a market for young female brides, and so trafficking pipelines usually occur when we see, you know, families um, that have a lot of daughters that are burned with the the cost of dowries, right? In order for for females in these in some of these. Um, situations to be married off families have to come up with a considerable amount of money to pay a dowry this is a huge burden for an impoverished family and so i think we see parents and families making the very difficult choice to to uh, you know i hate to use the language sell but to sell off a daughter right And so um, and
4: we're talking about six eight 10, 12 years old when we say child brides we're i mean they're very very young
0: yeah uh-huh. right and so when they
4: i'm sorry go ahead
3: Oh no! I was just gonna say, I the, the point that Heather is just making is the point I bring up the most when I'm talking about our book, when I'm teaching, that I think it's very easy to to villainize, right? These families that are selling these girls off, um, but at least from what Heather found and what what we found in looking at the India case, many of these families have either convinced themselves that they really are going into a marriage, um, so they may actually know, but they're sort of in denial, but I think there's also a lot of families that just genuinely don't understand what they're, what they're sending their daughters into, but they, they have to sort of sacrifice this one daughter for the sake of all the others, and, and just sort of how this isn't just a, in this case, a women and girls problem, but it is a, a family problem and, and sort of a victimization of families um, that I think really came through in this case.
4: So and let me add in on to that one, one of the interesting things about the India case is the federal government, the, the national government has some pretty good laws on the books about yes. human trafficking. But it's an incredibly weak federal system. Yes. So the states are, relatively speaking, more powerful than the federal government. It's sort of the flip of what you might the way you might think the United States works. But then also the local governments have a tremendous amount of say in how they enforce the law or don't enforce yeah. the law. And there is a a giant backlog of cultural approaches that devalue gir- women and girls it, it, that culturally it's very hard to get over – for that family. So the family that is going, well, you know, it's a marriage. That's what you do. You sell a kid into marriage. That's what you do. That's what happened to my sister. That's what happened to my grandmother's sister. That's what happened to. So there's this, the weight of the cultural history, devaluing female babies and and girls and women Mm -hmm. Um, it's very hard for a weak national government to pass a law and overcome that cultural uh, lens. So, um, yeah, Absolutely. the India chapter is especially depressing. They all are.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I I want to add in, too, that you know, I sort of want to go back to the point that, that I made earlier about what trafficking looks like, because yeah. I think the India case is the one – that most challenges the prevailing perceptions that we have that come from Hollywood movies we've seen about what trafficking looks like. The a good proportion of the people that we would consider traffickers or involved in the trafficking process here are family members of the victim. Um, Extended family members, um, often women, right, are traffickers in these cases. And so, this notion of the big bad man that comes and kidnaps somebody, that's not part of this. Right. Right. The way that this story looks is that you have a a desperate family that's kind of, you know, there are certain cultural norms and we see this thriving trade of young girls that that go into marriage. And I also want to talk about what, what the end game looks like there. So we're talking about trafficking that ends in sexual slavery. And so these women are not considered typical wives with all the rights and you know privileges we might think of as being associated with a standard marriage. Um, they're called mulki or Pero, and they are thought of as less than, um, disposable, <laughs> vulnerable, whether or not, you know, they've they've given birth, um, they're often turned out in the street. If it's the case that the family no longer wants or needs them, they can be sold like, um, you know, chattel. So there are a lot of problems with this system when we think about, you know, what happens for these women and girls at the end of this process.
4: Yeah. And often any male in the household um, is entitled to have sex with the, yeah. the person who's been sold into these... Um,
3: yeah.
4: Because Second she's not wife a formal, wife. she's not a formal wife. Yeah. Because that's she's crazy. not the first wife. She's, yeah. um, so you know, if you have a family with five or six, uh, teenage sons, uh, or even sons in their twenties or thirties or older, um, they can, uh, avail themselves of sex with the the person whenever they want. Um, and, uh, again, that's not, that's not something the local governments are going to go after, and stay popular. Right. So,
2: You also have a case study of Nigeria. Do you mind telling us about that?
3: Not at all. I sort of spearheaded that chapter um, so I can I can take the lead here and then if Tony and Heather have things to add, I'd, I'd love to hear those. Um, Nigeria was a really fascinating case um, to tackle and I think, I know you're going to ask us about challenges later, but this is kind of a good time, I think, to bring up this challenge. We talked about you know, the number of interviews we did and that we really tried to talk to people on the ground, um, there was this really sort of tense several months where we weren't really sure Brazil and Nigeria were ever going to come together. And the biggest challenge was, you know, in our preliminary set of questions that we would ask a potential interviewee, I mean, one of the most important is by talking to me, will you put yourself in danger? And in Brazil and in Nigeria, overwhelmingly the answer was yes and so it was very hard to find people willing to talk to us so we have fewer direct interviews in Nigeria and Brazil than in the other chapters because of that Um, it just uh, it seemed like it was a whether real or or perceived, a much more dangerous um, set of conversations for people to have. They they strong feelings that the government would be able to know who they were, even if we kept them anonymous in the chapter. So, um, so we relied a little bit more on the laws, the economic policies, enforcement um, uh, publications from some of these groups that we had wanted to interview. But I still think we we pulled out some really interesting um, findings. Um, just as in India, we found there's a diverse type, diverse types of trafficking going on in Nigeria. I think the one I found the most troubling was child and infant trafficking um, in Nigeria. There, in, in parts of Nigeria, because Nigeria is a very culturally diverse place, um, there are cultural taboos against raising children that are not your own, and so if you are not able to produce children of, that are your own. Um, the idea of adoption is just sort of anathema to them, right? It's not something that they, they're they even willing to consider. And so a lot of families lie and they buy children, preferably infants on the black market and through traffickers, um, to be able to raise their own children. And so a lot of that trafficking happenings, happens internally internally, or from other African nations. Um, and I thought that was a really important piece to include in the chapter because when we think of Nigerian trafficking, we normally think of trafficking into and out of Italy, right? Um, and so I thought this was really important that it's even happening sort of regionally within these countries, um, You know, the movement of these children. Um, but obviously the main part of the conversation is about this international trafficking to Europe um i think one of the most one of the most compelling pieces that we came across is that these Victims of trafficking coming out of Nigeria, they they know quite a bit about the situation that they're going into, right? They know that sex work is going to be part of this, like that's what they're going to do. They they're not under the impression that they're going to be models. They're not under the impression they're going to be housekeepers. Um, most of them think that you know, some of them think that might happen, that they may get a job like that, but that the primary thing they're going to be doing, at least in the beginning, is sex work. What they don't know is what the conditions will be like when they get there. Um, they, they aren't prepared for the level of violence. They aren't prepared for the level of sex work that they're being asked to do. Um, but th- they're all willing to sort of undertake that action in the beginning because it is the best chance they have to support their families.
4: Let me tag in there real uh, quick. Yeah. An- another thing they don't understand is that they're not gonna be able to quit. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. A lot of the people go into it and go, look, I'm going to go do this for a year. It's going to be terrible, but I need, I got to take care of my family. This will be a, and they don't realize they'll never see their passport again. They're going to do this until they get turned out because they're diseased or dying or, or whatever. And and you contrast that with uh, Russia, where Mm the people are often deceived that you're, you're going to be a hostess. You're going to be a dancer. You're going to be a a housekeeper. And then it turns out that it's sex work. So it's that it was a, the fraud is different, but still there.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think in addition to not realizing what's going to happen when they get there, if they do get out, they don't realize what's going to happen when they get home. And, and part of that is I think something we see across all of the cases and we see throughout Global society, victims of sexual assault, victims of sexual exploitation, whether people mean it or not, they are often aff- accorded some of that blame and treated differently because this has happened to them. And so Nigerian women certainly experience that. Um, but it's compounded for them because of the inclusion in religion. Um, on the side of the traffickers. So one of the most fascinating things I found and is is going to be a research project here pretty soon um, was sort of the weaponization of religion for these women. And so before they would even leave Nigeria, they would perform um, ceremonies that often involved ritual scarring. Um, that would say, okay, now if you leave, if you leave this trafficking situation, number one, everybody's going to know what you did because you now can bury the scars. Everybody will know who you are. Um, but more importantly than that, they use the power of religion and spirituality to say, if you leave, your family will be destroyed your family will die. Your family, like some catastrophic thing will happen to the thing people that you love because we've now combined your life force uh, with, with that of the traffickers. And so um, that in itself was interesting, but the government's response to this practice was what kind of blew me away was that, and I, and I don't think we came across this in any other case that the government said, okay, you're going to lose, use religion against these women. Well, we're going to use religion against you. And so I think it was the governor of the state of Edo who called The top religious figure in the state and said, hey, could you come and we'll have a public like clearing of this curse for all victims of trafficking? And he did it. And he basically said, I am removing all of the ties. I am removing all of of the bad juju that has been put on you and you are now free to to leave this situation without any sort of repercussions um and so it it led to some interesting conversations i think among us and in the chapter about the weaponization of religion by both sides of the story i think we're used to hearing weaponization of religion by the quote unquote bad guys right and here was a case where it was something that was used by both the the bad guys and the good guys, right? The sort of ostensible two sides.
4: And, and, um, and let me tag in on that also. Yeah. And that underscores the difficulty of responding to human trafficking yeah. through law and legal institutions alone. The yeah. the cultural envelope in which human trafficking occurs is harder to penetrate than the simple laws and the simple rules. Mm -hmm. So it isn't just, if only we had the right set of laws, if only we had the right set of rules to respond to this, we could fix these problems because it it is so, the perception of women is so intertwined into culture. It may be Mm -hmm. who can tell the dancer from the dance. It it may be one thing that we can't fix this through government and law, Alone,
3: Absolutely. Well, and I think even to build on that in the case of Nigeria, right, you, <laughs> as, as I think Tony and Heather were talking about earlier, the European governments like to put, and most Western governments, right, we like to put ourselves as the, oh, it's not as bad here, that kind of stuff doesn't happen here. As a government, we take care of these things. But this is all compounded for Nigerian victims because of the Italian governments perspective and actions and choices. Um, and I, I, the impression I get, so I, I do, I do study Italy a little bit and I I take classes to Italy and and I've done some interviews while I've been over there. Um, It seems under the current government that that is becoming even worse. Um, I mean, I think we've all probably seen news stories about how they're dealing with migrants coming across the Mediterranean, Um, but they very clearly see these Nigerian trafficking victims and victims from other countries as not their problem that that these are to be handled by the the other Nigerians in Italy. These are to be handled by the Nigerian government. This is to be it's been handled by somebody else. And so even if these trafficking victims were to be able to get out and get to Italian authorities, it's really not clear at all, at least from what I've been able to find, it's not clear that the Italian government would do much uh, to help them.
4: I I think Um, it's clear they would not.
3: Yeah I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to say definitively. I don't think we have I, to
4: hedge that. <laughs>
3: well, I, I don't want to say definitively because I know there are some, like we are talking with India, there are some local authorities that are taking very clear different stands from the Italian, the, the, the national Italian government um, and uh, on both migration, on trafficking, on on gay rights and all these sorts of things that are trying to sort of stake their, stake their place in the legal system. But, you know, if they end up in the national system uh, it, 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 the best option is that they'll be deported. I, um, and, I, and I don't think there's, there's much else.
0: <laughs> I'll just add two, two things first to say that I, this Patty let out on this chapter. And I think it's one of the best in the book. I really do. I think that uncovering the types of, of things that she found that contributed to this pattern in Nigeria. I mean, I I really do think that it's one of the strongest chapters in the book. Um, I wanted to add too that the what happens to the Nigerian women that end up in Italy is none, another one of these instances where we can ask ourselves, who is a trafficker and what do they look like? And so there is this great article and, you know, Patty engages this as well. um, A great article. It came out a while ago, um, 2014 by Eva Lowe and Kano, and it was in trends and organized crime. And there she talks about um, generational victims. And so when Nigerian women come to Italy, they are forced to engage in this work. Um, And eventually over time, in some instances, they're able to get out of it. But if you've been doing that, right, if you've You've been forced mm-hmm. into sexual slavery for 5, 10 years and you're then given an opportunity by the people that have enslaved you to now become part of the organization yeah. and you see no other possibilities for yourself. In many instances those women are now becoming traffickers themselves. And so do we think of those people as survivors, as traffickers, as both? How do we even yeah. begin to describe a situation like that or to to talk about people that have been in that scenario and i think Mm -hmm. that's particularly true for nigerian women yeah absolutely absolutely
2: so i want to uh stress for listeners that of course we're only skimming the surface right of all the rich content that's in these case studies and of course you know there are uh case studies of uh of thailand russia and nigeria uh, or excuse me uh thailand russia and brazil that, uh, that uh we won't get a chance to talk about here, unfortunately. Uh, but I'm hoping that listeners will uh, pick up the books, for, the book for themselves, um, to take a look at your very sophisticated analysis there. Um, so we've taken up a lot of your time, um, but uh, I wanted to ask you a final question, which is, uh, what would you say are the policy implications of this book?
4: Well, uh, I guess I'll take that one. Uh, the policy implications of the book are, uh, you know, I've sort of hinted at them. Um, Law alone is not gonna get it done, Um, but we have to begin to seriously push equality for women in every venue, every avenue, every way you can imagine if we are going to actually solve this problem. Until women are not thought of as a commodity anywhere, Mm -hmm. you're gonna have this problem anywhere the rights are not on par. And if you can push economic rights first, I suppose, and political rights with those economic rights, cultural rights might follow. They seem to improve over time. Um, One of the implications from our UN intervention in human trafficking, one of the recommendations we had is if there were many more women in military leadership, then you would have much less acceptable perception that it's okay to go hire a sex worker, if yeah. you had more women uh, making strategic decisions in the military, and and we've seen a lot of progress in the American military, since we wrote that article long ago. Mm-hmm. But if the world has to change for this problem to get solved, uh, it, we can't solve the problem and then change the world. We need women to have full citizenship, full economic yeah. rights, full cultural rights, full political rights to be able to then come up with actual solutions that would work.
3: Yeah, and I think one of the things that came through in all of the case studies, but in particular, India Brazil and Nigeria is that those changes need to be happening in a culturally and a historically authentic way, right? That this can't be a matter. I think we were all pretty clear on this isn't a matter of Western powers coming in and saying, this is what women's equality looks like, um, because we know how disastrous (laughs) that is. Um, But, but encouraging those, you know, sort of grassroots indigenous movements that are already starting to have these conversations um, and, and strengthening their role in society is, is, one of the best pathways that we can get those conversations started.
0: I agree with everything that Patty and Tony have just said, and I build on it as sort of a smaller piece that I think is important that's part of a growing movement, which is non-criminalization in this area. And so the idea that um, you know, a lot of the, you know, largely women, but not exclusively women that have been forced into being sex trafficking victims, um, are also forced by their traffickers to commit other types of crimes for which yeah. they develop criminal records, yeah. um. And so the emergence of this this movement toward non-criminalization, basically saying we should clear those records um, in the United States since 2016, I want to say it's about 40 states now that have created vacator laws for sex trafficking Mm. victims that, you know, are in some instances have been useful. Others, there's still much more work to be done to make them effective. But nevertheless, I think the fact that we're seeing attention to the fact that, criminal records for those that have been forced to engage in sex work against their will is something that we should clear so that they have a future. The fact that there's kind of a global movement and a a domestic movement toward achieving that, I think is progress. I mean, as dark and depressing as (laughs) it is, I mean, I, I, I do have to say that there has been some slight movement in the right direction to think about the life and experiences of the the women and girls that are put in these positions and what happens afterwards. Absolutely. Yep.
2: I think that's a very good note to to end on. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you all for being on the show today. Thank you Thank for inviting you. us.
4: Thank Lisa. you so much. We thoroughly enjoyed it. Pleasure.
2: The book is Heather Smith Kanoy, Patricia Rada, and Charles Anthony Smith's Sex, Trafficking, and Human Rights, the Status of Women and State Responses, published by Georgetown University Press in 2022. Thank you for listening.